Camilla Winlow. I run consultancy services for DQM GRC. And with me, we have John Potts, who's the operations director for GRCI Law. And we're here today to talk about Brexit and trends um, and the practical implications for UK and EU data transfers. And that also applies to any other international transfers that you want to do where the EU is part of it and any other country is part of it as well. So this applies to quite a lot of transfers, but we're particularly looking at Brexit, which is due obviously to happen at the end of the year. This webinar um, will count as one point of CPD. If you're collecting CPD, you'll get a certificate after the webinar. And we'll also send you a copy of the slides and a link to get a recording of the webinar as well, if you want it. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. I will start by introducing myself properly. I am not a lawyer. What I am is an award-winning privacy by design trainer and consultant. So I run DQM GLC, which is the um, data protection implementation consultancy wing of ITG and of our group. Um, I have over a decade of experience commercializing regulatory change. I've launched three financial services businesses. So this is really a passion for me. Um, finding regulations, finding things, and then finding ways to make them good business. And um, we have lots of different things that we can do to help you if you are interested. Uh, so we can help you assess your data transfers, come up with an action plan for them. We can train you in privacy by design, we'd love to do that. Um, and we can take you through an assessment of the specific actions that you may need to do for Brexit and make sure that you haven't missed anything. So feel free to follow up afterwards if you'd be interested in talking to us about that. Um, my colleague, John Potts, I will hand over now so he can introduce himself. Good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> For those of you who have never been on one of my uh, on one of the webinars that I've taken part in before, my name is John Potts, and as Camilla said, I'm the operations director at GRCI Law. You can see my background on the screen. Or uh, I've been with GRCI Law for just under two years, literally a week under two years, or a month under two years, sorry. And prior to that, I was the data protection officer, departmental security officer and then eventually Head of Information Law and Security with the UK Metropolitan Police Service. Been involved in data protection for 10 years and prior to that I was a real detective so I'm possibly poacher turned innkeeper but um, that probably gives me that insight there. So as Operations Director at GRCI Law I look after the outsourced DPOs, the DSAR team, the breach team and the contract and legal team within GRCI Law. We do the complete packages of outsourced DPO, privacy as a service, uh, and again, all the information is on our website. But what I do have is a team within GRCI Law made up of super duper, if you will, data protection and data privacy specialist. So that's me. So um, just a very quick, this has been the price of admission, um, overview of what our group of companies does. We are GLC International. We have Vigilant Software, which offers privacy software, gdpr.co.uk, which is specifically for schools, um, IT governance, which is privacy and manage, uh, management um, systems and cybersecurity, ITGP, which is our publications arm. So any books on anything that we talk about, you can get from there. GRCI Law and DQM we've already talked about, and GRC e-learning as well. 
um, which offers staff awareness and we have training and qualifications um, which are externally accredited in a range of things. So anything that you might be interested in to do with IT governance, risk, quality, compliance, we're here to help you, to protect you, to help you comply and to make you thrive. That's it. So having got the business of the start over with, let's talk about what the main part of this webinar is going to be. So our intention is to take you through this agenda um, over the course of about the next 40 minutes. And then that leaves us with about 15 minutes to take questions at the end. Um, you will see um, in the menu that there is an option for you to post questions for us. So if you'd like to put any questions into the questions, uh, we will pick those up at the end and I'll do our best to answer them for you. And you're obviously also very, very welcome to get in touch with us afterwards if you have any other questions that you come up with, having had the chance to ponder what we've got to say. So our agenda, um, we're going to start by talking about Brexit and about the Shones 2 decision um, and what it means for transfers of data. So we're assuming that some of the people who've joined us have heard a little about it but don't really know and others of you will be quite expert and will be interested in what happened last week when we had quite a lot of extra updates. We'll cover both. We will look at the implications for UK and EU data controllers around data transfers, the operational choices that you need to make and we'll talk about how you can make them. We'll go through the options that you have for transferring data um, and the different alternatives that there are to data transfers. We'll look at the practical steps that your organisation can take now. And we'll have a little think about what might happen in the future for Brexit. So those are the things that we're going to talk about today. So we'll start by saying, why are we here? Well, it's all about data. Data transfers around the world are incredibly important to, for pretty nearly every business. It's difficult to think of any business that doesn't try to transfer data um, around the world. And um, what's happened with Brexit and trends is we've had some new rules and some clarification of existing rules about the things that we need to think about, the risks that there are, um, the issues that there are, and the things that we as organisations need to be looking after when we're transferring data around the world are making choices about how we're going to do that. And this is fundamental. It's really important for us. Um, and so this is why we're here to talk about how we make our data processes work in a way that works for our organisations and it also keeps our people safe. So John, I'm going to hand over to you and ask you to just take us through the timeline of all of the different things that have happened with Brexit and with trends and around international data transfers. Thanks, Camilla. I think it's fair to say that those of us that have been involved in data protection for a while, <clears throat> when GDPR was first mooted, and sort of around about 2010, 2012, and 2016, the big dates there, we talked about the biggest change to data protection in a generation. When you look at the last six months, the last six months is also going to change, I think, data protection and data privacy for the next generation to come. So we start off back in July with the Schrems 2 decision, which invalidates the privacy shield. Here we go again, good old Max. <laughs> he worked his magic on safe harbor, had to go at privacy shield. Not a knock, by the way. If it's broken, then we need to fix it. And that's what we did. Come forward to the 6th of October, 
ripper, that mainstay of um, police officers and law enforcement agencies up and down the country. The Regulation Investigative Powers Act was deemed unlawful by the CJEU. An interesting decision, but um, there they go. That's what they did. A couple of days later, the DCMS writes to the organisation warning them that may need to take extra steps to keep data flowing after Brexit. Yeah, yeah, good move there. Yeah, and I think that's probably uh, a lot of what we're talking about. We then had the EDPB issuing new guidance on international transfers on the 11th of November. And then the 12th of November, we saw the new SECs for consultation. Um, and that period ends on the 10th of December. Just out of interest, it's my birthday. Please feel free to put me card or an email on my birthday. We're going to talk about that consultation period later and about how that fits in and what the new SCCs are going to cover. And then, of course, we've got the 31st of December when the UK will officially leave the EU. So, as I say, the past six months are going to shape the future, ranging from Ripper right through to Brexit. So interesting times, which are going to lead to interesting times, I think. Absolutely. So just in case there's anybody on this webinar who doesn't recognise all the terms that are on the slide, the Schrems 2 decision we'll go through in a second. Um, it is the decision about um, how, how you can lawfully transfer data to the US. Um, CJEU stands for the Court of Justice of the European Union, so it's the main court for, that you can raise court cases to in Europe. Um, it's as high as you can get. DCMS is in the UK, that's the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, and that is the department that is responsible for data protection at a, a government level. The EDPB is the European Data Protection Board and that is um, basically a committee that has all of the individual nation states regulatory authorities like the ICO represented at it um, and they come together to find consistent ways of explaining how um, different regulations should be interpreted and what organisations should be expected to do. So when they issue guidance that is what tells us what it is that we're expected to do to comply with the law. SCCs, that stands for Standard Contractual Clauses, and we'll explain that in a bit of more detail later, but it's basically the clauses that you have to include in your contract to make sure that you're complying with the law. So that's all of the terminology that you need. I'm now going to move us on, and John, if you can just take us through the timeline for Safe Harbour and then the um, Schrems 2 decision, so we can understand a bit more about what happened with the United States. Right. Well, as, as Camilla said, and my apologies for whipping through like a geek on those um, on, on those acronyms there. Being an ex-policeman, I love a good bunch of acronyms. So. To and safe harbour. So back in 95, we had the Data Protection Directive come into force. And in 98, we had the Data Protection Directive was implemented. And this, you'll recall, was the, for those in the know, the, the previous Data Protection Act, 1998, when the UK um, brought the directive into UK law. In 2000, the EU and the US agreed safe harbour as a method of transferring data between the US and 
uh, and the EU. But we've already started to get concerns of being expressed there by Charlesworth. 2001, if we see there, the US Patriot Act expands US surveillance, surveillance, I'm sorry. What we have to put in the middle of there is 9-11. 9-11 was the, uh, the, the catalyst for George Bush to introduce the Patriot Act because of the, um, the disconnect, and, and I'm being very general here, so to please forgive me, this is not a, a knock at anybody, the, the proposed disconnect, or the disconnect, sorry, between the intelligence agencies within the states. So the US Patriot Act, and for those that really need to know, acronym for uniting and strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. I somebody got promoted on the back of that. <laughs> the US Patriot Act came in and when we look at it I think we can see why it was brought in. In 2004 the European Commission expressed concerns about the amount of data, the amount of personal data the US were uh, the US surveillance organizations, intelligence organizations were actually accessing. In 2013, uh, we had Snowden releasing the NSA files to the world, WikiLeaks, etc. And then in 2015, um, Max Schrems wins his case and Safe Harbor, which takes us right back to 2000 about um, how we share data with the US uh, from the EU was invalidated. So the, the, the mutings were there right back from 2000 when Safe Harbor was first agreed. The, the mutings were definitely there that it was, it was wrong, but I think it was an act for our times and without a doubt, you, I think we have to see it in the context of what was happening around the world. So that's where we are. That brings us up to 2015, say, with the invalidation of Safe Harbour. Yeah, and, and it's an interesting one, isn't it, John? Because um, international data transfers, as I said earlier, they're, they're really important. It's very difficult to do business without international data transfers. And so much of the software that we use comes from America. Um, but they have very different laws from us. And the idea of Safe Harbour was to allow organizations to send data to the US, but it was really a political fudge, wasn't it? Um, and, and this has been something that actually we've, we've found, and I think um, we'll, we'll get onto it. You just can't fudge politically like that anymore. So I don't, I think we can say that this is us watching the attempts to find political nice compromises to, to problems failing, and this is the first time that happened, would you say? Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I think the other thing to remember is that Safe Harbor, of course, was something that it was self-regulating. Mm -hmm. uh, companies would sign up to say yes, they, they read and understand Safe Harbor and they're doing everything it says they should be doing. Well, anything self-regulating like that, where the majority of people will, we'd like to think, be honest and have the integrity to do it. There are obviously fallbacks um, of people that won't. And I think that's what Max Schrems highlighted. And as I say, quite rightly so, if that's what was happening uh, and data wasn't safe, because as I think sometimes as data protection professionals, we sometimes forget that it's our data that's out there as well. So it's our data when we're flying over US airspace and things like that that, that was being shared. So 
Yes, definitely. Okay, SHREMS 2 then. So 2015, we saw the GDPR um, got to take shape and come into force. 2016, the EU and the US agreed privacy shield. So taken the place of safe harbor, we've got privacy shield, and I, I suspect before the signatures were dry, Max had started looking at it again. Uh, 2016, we had several significant uh, cases that start to emerge, and especially in the Secretary of State for the Home Department versus Tom Watson, where the EU reaffirms mass state surveillance cannot, sorry, mass state surveillance cannot be lawful under EU law. And this is where we start to look at when Max really starts to look at um, Privacy Shield and the way that um, data is looked at and surveillance is undertaken. 2018, we have the culmination of, of the directives and we now have the regulation that GDPR is implemented. And of course, included in that is the Data Protection Act containing the GDPR under the UK legislation. Interestingly enough, of course, we also get the, um, the directive on policing as part three of the Data Protection Act. So law enforcement comes under that. And then we have the security service in the part four. So we're already implementing, we're already looking at, we being the UK, at the differentials between GDPR. So in 2020, as we saw in July, SHREMS 2, as we're calling it, invalidated Privacy Shield. 2020 also, we've got Privacy Shield under discussion and the EU and the US begin talks on a successor for Privacy Shield, literally within days of, um, of, of those talks starting, then none of your business, no yo, issue 101 complaints across Europe, not the UK at this stage. Interestingly enough, Camilla and I were discussing this earlier on, well, yesterday, sorry, that it's not all big companies. They've gone for some little, smaller companies as well. So they're highlighting things that are going there. So again, we can see how, again, I'll go back to what I said earlier, if it's wrong, it needs fixing, but the impact is going to be massive on both the way we share international data for business and the way we share international data for crime, for the prevention and detection of crime. And I think what's interesting for me, looking at these two timelines in particular, is um, I know I've had conversations, I'm sure you have too, John, with people asking whether we can just wait it out for the EU and the US to come up with a compromise and just wait for that to happen. Um, and I think what we're looking at here is twice that's happened and it's failed, and it's failing faster. So um, it took 15 years for safe harbour to go from being something that everybody was uncomfortable with to something that had been thrown out by court. It took four years for the same thing to happen to privacy shield. So that's a quarter of the time. Um, and that kind of suggests to me that if this cycle continues happening faster and faster and faster without something radical changing, you know, any successor is going to go within a year. 
So this is something that we have to take seriously. It's not going away. It's becoming, it's coming into sharper focus, if you like. Um, and, and the other thing that I'd like to sort of, um, particularly to draw your attention to is you're looking at sort of what feels like something that can be quite highfalutin, but it's, you know, it's all to do with EU bodies, US government and big, big law courts. And actually you've got these privacy activists like Max Schrems, who was not letting go of this, and uh, none of your business, which is not letting go of this. And they are coming for companies. They are taking court cases. They are um, making complaints to data protection regulators and they're following through. So this is something that we have to take seriously. And I think we have to accept that even though it's what we're going to talk about, um, it, it's not things that organizations want to talk about. It's quite uncomfortable. It's, you know, it's, we're, we're asking you to think about difficult topics here. Um, but I think you've got no choice, and, and we can see that this is going to end badly <laughs> if you don't take it seriously. So um, that was the, you know, the one extra bit I wanted to draw out from here, really. So let's talk about what can happen to the UK after Brexit. So um, what we've looked at is trends to failing because of state surveillance rules. Um, and one of the jobs of the European Commission is to look at countries that are not in the EU and decide whether they are what you call adequate or not. And a country that's adequate is a good thing. Um, it means that you can transfer data to that country as if the country was in the EU. So there is nothing extra that you need to do when you transfer data to, say, Argentina than if you were just transferring it up the road. It's the same level of safeguarding, nothing extra at all. Um, and so the UK, which obviously has been in the EU, would like to maintain that status and that really easy flow of data. And we're hoping we get something called an adequacy decision process that we do. Um, and if that's the case, it means that the ICO will be considered an effective re uh, regulator. It means our laws will be considered essentially equivalent to those in the EU. And there are no practical changes that need to be made to our data flows. What happens if we don't get the adequacy decision by the end of the year, though? Well, in that case, we become what you call a third country. And, and what you need to understand is the adequacy decision is a really complicated thing for the European Commission to make. It normally takes about three years. Um, and we can't assume that the EU is going to do it in time by the end of the year. So. The EU, this could happen to us either because the EU has not decided that we are adequate by the end of this year, or it could decide that we are not adequate at all. And it's actually, um, I would say, it's become increasingly likely that this is what's going to happen to us over the course of this year. Um, and in particular, with that case that we mentioned earlier about Ripper being thrown out, because fundamentally the problems that they identified with Ripper that made that unlawful are the same as the problems with US state surveillance that made Privacy Shield fall. So we're saying that the amount and the way that the states are doing surveillance and the controls over that state surveillance, the EU is not okay. And that's the connected problem. to mobile device. And, and the issue that that causes for us is it makes it slightly more likely that the EU is not going to make a decision and just push us through as being adequate 
or that if it does do that by the end of the year, that we could end up with that being appealed or challenged by somebody like an AYB, um, and it could go. So we need to be planning um, that we might become a third country, that the EU could have the same kind of status as the US and not be like it is now, part of the EU with that easy flow of data. I think picking so, up on that, Camilla, sorry if I may, yeah, just jumping in, you, you mentioned Ripper going back, uh, getting on for three years now, where I, I was lucky enough to uh, represent the UK as part of the team that got, uh, achieved the Prume Agreement for the exchange of biometric data for EU and UK law enforcement. And one of the tripping points on that on a regular basis was Ripper. So I think all of these things are going to ripple through and build into worlds and not getting an, an adequate decision. I know there have been lots of people that have said, well, surely we've got GDPR already implemented into the Data Protection Act 2018. Surely the rest of the other member states will just say, well, yeah, we were doing it before. We'll just give you that adequacy. But, you know, when you think that at the moment, the two adequacy decisions that are being discussed are ourselves and South Korea. So we're in the same discussions at the moment. Uh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. It, it's most certainly, it's not a given that the way that data transfers is going to be the same in six weeks from now. Um, so let's look at the things that we'll need to do if that's what happens and we're not adequate. So there's three specific things that we're going to need to do. Two of them we're going to have to do regardless, even if we are adequate. So We'll need an EU representative inside the EU and we'll need to have picked a lead supervisory authority in the EU. And if anybody on here is an EU processor um, who's not based in the UK but processes data for UK citizens, the same thing applies in reverse. You'll need a UK representative and you'll need to have identified that the ICO becomes your supervisory authority in the UK. That happens regardless. The last thing is what we're going to spend a bit of time on, which is this idea of standard contractual clauses. Um, and that's the thing that you'll probably need to do for your actual data flows. So, John, would you mind just explaining what an EU representative is and, and why an organisation might need one of those? Thanks, Camilla. As you say, the role of the EU representative, as we see on there, is to represent the non-EU organisation and, and let's get that clear, post the 31st of December, that's going to be us, the UK. Um, so they will represent the, the non-EU organisation with respect to its GDPR obligations. It'll serve as a local point of contact for data subjects and supervisory authorities. So you're going to have to have your privacy notice adjusted to show that you've got a contact point specifically for EU members. Uh, EU uh, citizens, sorry, EU residents, I'm just going to correct myself there, EU residents to contact you and the supervisory authority. Your EU rep will hold a record of your Article 30 record, um, so they'll hold that and if it's required then they will um, bring that to the attention of the supervisory authority, but they're not responsible for your GDPR compliance. 
So, EU representative, when you say like that, is probably the easiest one of what we're going to talk about to get our heads around. Or is it? Earlier this morning, and I, I, this is a genuine story, earlier this morning, one of our DPs took a call from a third sector organisation who were convinced that they would be no longer able to operate or collect data from outside the UK because they didn't have an office in Ireland. And that's what they were concerned about. They were thinking that on the 31st of December, they would just fold. And it reminded me of a meeting I went to back in early 2018, uh, when I was still with, with the Met Police, when a borough in London declared, they put a big presentation together and they declared to ourselves, the Met and to other councils, that they could no longer share information about children at risk with the police because it would be against, and I'm quoting, the GRDP. That was how it started. So that instantly made me think that perhaps they've got other things wrong at the same time. But that set them up for the rest of the meeting, as you can see. Thank you for our panicking organisation that we're now right, by the way. I've read 27 a number of times and can see why a layman could be confused. Luckily, you're one of those people who's now shuffling in their seat thinking, oh my gosh, that was it. Don't panic. Don't close the door. Don't tell the shareholders that you're leaving. Give us a call. We've got a simple cost-effective way of doing that. There's still some discussion around where the representative needs to be established within the EU. As always, the most important part is to show the supervisory authority that you have the data subjects interest at heart and that they and the supervisory authority know how to get hold of you. So it's privacy notice, it's article 30, it's letting people know that you've got that rep and exactly where that rep is located. Yeah. So what about your EU and UK supervisory authorities, John? Okay, this is a, um, a, a really, not, not a tricky one, but it's, it's causing quite a bit of um, discussion at the moment. The role of any supervisory authority is to monitor and enforce compliance with the GDPR, exactly as we know what the ICO does now. Provide guidance and promote, promote awareness. So you go on the ICO's website, gives you all the guidance that you, that you need, um, you can pick up on anything that, um, that they've got their heads around. And other supervisory authorities receive complaints from data subjects and other bodies. And as you said, in the UK, that's the ICO. And who is your most appropriate in the EU? <laughs> Looking at the, at the GDPR, I always think that Article 4 regarding the main establishment it's probably a quintessential piece of Eurospeak. It is a really baffling piece. And as we know, post 31st of December, the ICO no, will no longer be in the tent, and therefore they won't be part of the one-stop shop that we now enjoy, which means that you can be registered with the ICO and everything else happens around that. You don't need to do anything with, other, with any other supervisory authority. But in their own words, the ICO will not be the regulator for any European-specific activities 
caught by the EU version of the GDPR, although we hope to continue working closely with European supervisory authorities, unquote. The key to deciding if you need to register with another EU member state um, supervisory authority is primarily where the decisions about the purpose and means of your cross-border processing are made. The location of your DPO and other managers involved in data protection is probably an also a factor that you need to take into consideration. So where are you based? Who's making the decisions? Where are your managers that are making those decisions? As we've previously discussed, if a UK business is processing the data of EU member state residents, there's probably a requirement for an EU rep. But as Camilla said, if you are not in the UK, if you are an EU-based uh, organisation, then you probably need a UK rep in exactly the same way. But there's no legal requirement to register with a, uh, a European supervisory authority. The downside of that is, of course, that in the event of a breach involving uh, member state residence data, you may have to inform all the supervisory authorities which are affected and, of course, be liable to individual enforcement action. It's a very broad brush that covers those areas there. If you've got specifics, give us a call and we can pick those up and, and assist you on that. But that's your supervisory authority in, in a nutshell, isn't in a nutshell at all. <laughs> but they are the easiest bits to sort of get your head around to start with. So I, I would say start there. And then we'll move on to the bit where it gets a bit more complicated. But definitely look at those two things. That's the first actions from us. So now let's get into what gets a bit more complicated. So, John, um, can you explain what standard contractual clauses are and just give people a bit of a potted history of what's going on with the standard contractual clauses at the moment? Yeah, the standard contractual clauses or SCCs. Are, have always been the basis for routine transfers and, and basically the idea of an SEC is to ensure compliance across the board with GDPR and third countries. It gives us specific responsibilities, ensures that data subjects can exercise their rights and it makes data controllers accountable for compliance. But basically about transparency. It's making sure that you've got everything in place to protect that data and, and again, anybody who's ever worked with me or, or, or been on webinars, the, the, the thing that I push through is that the GDPR is about the right of the data subject. That, that's what it's all about. And SCCs confirm that. They put those into a, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to do it. So when we had those, life used to be relatively simple. We knew what we were doing. And then along came Max. Round two, changed the way that things are happening. So the rationale for the need for standard, standard contractual clauses remains the same. If someone in the EEA, the European Economic Area, so don't let's forget Iceland, Norway, and Liechtenstein are included in that, sends personal data to someone else who is outside the EEA. They must comply with the GDPR rules on international transfers of personal data. So far, so good. 
SCCs are one of a number of safeguards which can be used to comply and the most likely to be appropriate for small and medium-sized businesses. I'm concentrating this, this presentation on these areas of business, but if, uh, if we've got any public authority or, or corporations on the webinar that need to discuss that, again, come to us because we can scale that up because there are different um, different levels that public authorities and bigger businesses can use. SCC are a standard set of contractual terms and conditions, which the sender and the receiver of the personal data both sign up to. They include contractual obligations which help to protect personal data when it leaves the EEA and the protection of the GDPR. So all goes back to protecting that personal data, what are we going to do? It is the EEA sender of the personal data which must comply with the GDPR rules. The UK receivers may want to assist those sending senders in complying to make sure data continues to flow if the transition period ends without adequacy. That's another quote from the ICO. I think, as we've been discussing, adequacy is not going to happen before December the 31st unless there's a rabbit going to be pulled out of a hat, as I say, that we don't know how. Life used to be simple, as I said. Although the ICO, to my knowledge, has not issued a formal statement, and we did try, believe me, to get a statement from the ICO on SCCs. I don't think you can see Camilla, but Camilla is nodding furiously, because I know we, we tried quite a bit on that. Um, the ICO has not issued a, a formal statement yet on, on the new SCCs. However, that said, and I say this in all seriousness, the ICO online tool remains a really good starting point. However, we, as we heard earlier, on the 12th of this month, the EU have issued draft, new draft standard contractual clauses for a consultation period up until the 12th, uh, sorry, until the 10th of December. And those drafts um, of the new standard contractual clauses for transfer of personal data from the EU and third countries, and a draft of SCCs that can be easily used by controllers when engages processes located in the EU as per Article 28. So what we're saying is that now we've got controller, controller, controller to processor. We've got those drafts that are out there. I suspect the general consensus is that they'll be ready to go in early 2020 once we've had the consultation period and we get those rolled out. Where does Mac come into this again? Well, the new SECs are more comprehensive than the previous sets. I think they run to about 28 pages, I think, 27 pages. On the one hand, they reiterate the legal requirements introduced by the GDPR in 2018 and, of course, the DPA such as increased transparency, obligations of the parties, and strengthened data subject rights. On the other hand, the new SCCs also aim to address some of the new requirements arising from the decision of the European Court of Justice, SREMS 2, which invalidated the EU-US Privacy Shield and required parties using the standard contractual clauses to assess if the personal data transferred to countries outside of the EEA would be afforded an adequate level of data protection according to the GDPR requirements. My apologies for reading that, but I wanted to make sure that we got the wording right. 
in a nutshell, again, what standard contractual clauses do is to protect that data, but the new ones make you look at the risks with who you are sharing that data with. Just because there is a risk doesn't mean that you can't do it, but it makes you look at that. They are a really good tool. Start with the ICO, look at their, their tool. Once you've worked your way through that, give us a ring, and one of my barristers in contract and legal will help you sort them out for you. Super. So standard contractual clauses then. So 28 pages that you have to put verbatim into your contract. That's it in a nutshell. Um, and the challenge we're going to have is we know that the UK intends to adopt the EU ones, but the EU ones, the EU ones will be changing and Brexit will be in the middle of them changing. So that's the problem that we've got. I would say though, um, that if you look at the uh, standard contractual clauses that are in draft at the moment, um, that would be the ones that I would be thinking about as being what you should be putting in your contract, not the old ones. And they're going to make the um, any contracts that have got the old ones in, they're talking about rescinding those. So you have to replace all of them with these new clauses. So I suspect there um, will be... So, so, sorry, Camilla, I, I, I don't know whether you're going to say we anticipate there'll be a 12 month rollout to enable changes to be made between the old and the new. Yes, and that's a really important point. So, so what do you do in the next 12 months? Do you just sit and wait or have you got work to do? I hate to say it and you're going to guess, you've got work to do. So let's have a talk about what it is that you're going to have to do to implement your contractual clauses and what you're going to have to do. So here are your options. So for routine transfers, anything that you do as a normal business process, you can either send data outside of the EU because there's an adequacy, adequacy decision, like you said, because you're going to use standard contractual clauses or because you're going to use binding corporate rules. You used to be able to use Safe Harbor. You used to be able to use Privacy Shield. Both of those fell. Um, and, and I just want to make the quick point that any of these you could have a problem and you could end up having them stopped. So when you're implementing these, think about your business continuity. What are you going to do if these things change? So even if a country has got an adequacy decision, um, it's possible for that adequacy decision to be changed. It has to be reviewed periodically and the review can decide that the country is no longer adequate, in which case you can't use that anymore. You're going to need to put standard contractual clauses in place if you can. If you've got standard contractual clauses in place, and in fact it turns out that they can't be honoured in practice, the transfer has to stop as soon as that's realised. So business continuity again. And with binding corporate rules, the same thing. If you put binding corporate rules in place, and those are rules that apply to one multinational organisation that it agrees on its own with the supervisory authority. So most organisations won't use this, um, but it's the same thing, but it's possible that you can no longer abide by your corporate rules. And if that happens, the transfers have to stop. That is a business continuity issue. So anytime you are sending data internationally, you need to have a corresponding business continuity plan to explain what you will do if you have to stop that transfer. So that's the first thing to do. Now, what do you do if you've got a non-routine transfer? Well, if you're just transferring data on an occasional basis, 
um, or there are certain other things, but this is not a routine process. You can use what they call Article 49 derogations. So that basically means that in the event of con a real consent, which is a higher amount of consent, you have to provide more information to the individual. Um, on a one-off basis, an individual can consent to their data being sent to an unsafe country where you can't put standard contractual clauses in place. Similarly, in the case of a contract, so you're a travel agent, you're trying to send somebody to America, you can send the data to America to help them with their holiday on the basis of an Article 49 derogation. You can't use these all the time and you are acknowledging when you do use them that you're doing something that you know is unsafe. So it's really important if you're doing that, that you make sure that you've explained how unsafe it is to the data subject before you do it. Um, and that's part of what you have to do to use this basis. So if you've heard anybody tell you that one of the things you can do if we don't get adequacy is just get people's consent for you to carry on with your normal business processes, that is not true. You have to use standard contractual clauses most likely, possibly binding corporate rules, but, as I said, you can't assume that that is just going to work as it stands. You're going to have to do things to make, to make it work. So let's walk through those um, in order. So your adequacy decision, we've got 12 of them at the moment. There's a couple of big countries in there, like Argentina and Japan, but they're generally quite small places like the Faroe Islands and Andorra. Um, the adequacy criteria is worth running through because this is very similar to the um, decisions that you're going to have to make about whether you think you're going to be safe to send your data on the basis of standard contractual clauses. So you're looking at what's the rule of law like in this country? Do they respect human rights and fundamental freedoms properly? What kind of legislation is there in place? How is that enforced? about public security, defence, national security, criminal law. And this is what the European Commission thinks about when it decides whether data is safe to go to another country. It's what it's deciding about the UK. And looking at that part on relevant legislation, this is why RIPA matters, because the Court of Justice of the European Union has said that in the case of RIPA, in the case of our state surveillance laws, they're not adequate, they're not good enough under EU law. So the alternative it gives us is SCCs and BCRs, the standard contractual clauses and binding corporate rules. So your standard contractual clauses, they're set by the European Commission, it's your 28 pages that you have to put into your contract, they have to go into in full, you have to check that people are complying with them. It's not a paper exercise. It's not a question if you put it in your contract and that now means you're covered. So as part of you using those clauses, you have to also put in place an assurance process that says that you know that they are being complied with and you have to document that you are following that process you've set. Depending on how risky your transfer is and how large you are, that could be anything from um, sending a questionnaire to your suppliers to get them to assure you that they're doing it all the way through to you may have to go and audit the company. So um, we have recently, for example, um, audited on behalf of a very large US company um, some of their suppliers to assure them that with external assurance that they are complying with their contract terms and processing data correctly. So that's at the top end for a large organisation with a lot of data that it's doing on, on this basis. At the smaller end, 
it's a questionnaire that goes through you know relatively thoroughly and says are you doing this and gets the other organization to confirm that they are but you must have a process in place we can give you templates we can help you with this but you do need to do something like that it's not just a case of putting the clauses in your contract and leaving them you can't do that um, and and this is the other point i've made it before it's worth making again if the recipient of the data outside of the EEA can't comply anymore, you have to stop transferring the data. They have to stop ac accepting the data. That has to happen immediately. So that's the business continuity issue that I talked about before. And because it's a counterparty, you don't have complete control over whether that happens or not. So you need to assume that it's possible that that third party, for its own reasons, will decide that it won't accept the data or it won't send the data, the data transfer has to cease. It can happen very quickly. So it's really important that you understand what that would do to your organization. If that transfer stopped quickly, how would you cope? What would you do instead? So this is a business continuity issue. So what's Europe asking you to do um, when you're assessing the laws in the country? So the big thing that we know that they care about is these state surveillance laws. So this is the thing that um, the European Data Protection Board has come out and said that it wants to see. It wants to see what it calls essential guarantees for surveillance measures, and there are these four of them. So first of all, they want you to show that processing is based on clear, precise and accessible rules. Then they want to show that it, there's necessity and proportionality with regard to legitimate objects pursued that need to be demonstrated. So effectively what we're saying is you can't just surveil everybody all the time. That's usually what the problem is when we've seen these things fail in the court of justice. Um, you need to be able to say, for these reasons, I wish to surveil that person for this set length of time. So you have to show that that's how surveillance works in the country. There needs to be an independent oversight mechanism so people who are surveilled need to have an ability to complain about it and for there to be an effective method for them to get redress in the case that it's found that the surveillance was wrong. And these effective remedies need to be available, which means you need to be able to stop the surveillance, prevent the surveillance, um, I don't know, compensate to somebody for what happened to them because of the surveillance. All of these things need to be there. In practical reality, most organizations cannot do this it's too difficult and in fact how likely is a country to meet the guarantees well since 2001 the european court of justice has looked at surveillance laws in a number of countries um, and each of these pins that you can see on this map is on a country that the european court of justice has decided since 2001 um, do not meet the requirements. So the UK, it looks like the pins may have moved around a bit actually, um, the UK, France, Luxembourg, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, I think, um, Slovenia, definitely, all of these different places, Russia, the United States, they've all decided that they don't. And in fact, the European Court of Justice, to my knowledge, has only looked at one country and decided that its state surveillance laws did meet the requirements, and that was Sweden, and that decision is currently under appeal. So 
in our view, it is much safer for you to just assume that it's not even worth doing the work of seeing whether the country meets the essential guarantees. You should assume that it doesn't. And if it doesn't, that means that on top of your standard contractual clauses, you also have to put in place supplementary measures. And what those supplementary measures are there to do is to stop state surveillance of the data that you transfer. So the European Data Protection Board is asking you to go through these six steps when you transfer data um, internationally. So step one is what I would suggest you do next after you've sorted out your EU representative and decided whether you need to appoint a lead supervisory authority or not. Know your transfers. So if you have your data flows mapped already, this bit's quite easy for you. You just need to check it's up to date but you need to map them. And the amount of mapping that you need to do is quite extensive. So you need to understand all of the places that your data could be accessed from. Um, and you need to build a map that shows you the countries that are able to access your data throughout your processes. And what we're talking about here is everything right up to when you send your data to a third party, where is their IT help desk based? So if they're using an IT help desk in Mumbai, your data is accessible in India. So you need to understand where is the location of the place you are sending the data? And having sent it there, where are all of the places that that place makes the data available? It could be an international organization. So you need to include all of the branches of that organization, the IT help desk, any sort of sub-processes, where's their software sending data, all of those things, quite complicated. I would say start by thinking about your business critical processes and any process that processes high-risk personal data, because otherwise it's too much of an elephant to start chewing. So start there with the really important stuff and make sure that you really understand how your data is flowing, where it goes, where it's accessible from and verify that you really have minimized the data that you send. It's really common for us to see that people will take a whole spreadsheet of a whole database and make it available to a recipient. And there will be something that happens at the boundary where the recipient will then collect only certain data or it will collect all of the data, but only bits of it will go into the database, etc. That's not data minimization. I've also had lots of conversations with organizations who sends data for further processing, where actually that further processing could have happened before the transfer, that's not minimization either necessarily. So think through your processes and make sure that you really are sending only the least amount of data that is necessary for the purpose you're transferring it for, and that you really understand where that data can be accessed from. That's your first thing to do, focus on that. That's very much the next thing to do. Once you know where your data is going, you need to verify the transfer tool that you're using. So have you got adequacy in place? Are you using standard contractual clauses? Are you using binding corporate rules? Is there a derogation? What's that? That then needs to go into your records of processing so you're clear on that. If you're using anything other than adequacy or a derogation, you need to do this mini adequacy 
approach where you're assessing the legal environment against the essential guarantees. Like I said, unless you are massive and really up for a legal challenge, just assume it fails. Just assume it fails, okay? So that takes us quickly on to now you've got to put some supplementary measures in place. So you have to identify some effective controls that will stop it being possible for the nation state that you are sending the data to, to access the data that you have sent to the country. That is strict. And we expected after the Schrems decision, um, I expected that the guidance was going to tell us that certain kinds of data could be transferred or certain kinds of recipients couldn't receive the data. That is not what the EDPB has done. They have specifically said, that you must stop state surveillance, full stop. So your effective controls need to do that. And you need to have tested the design of the control, so to make sure that it is effective against the particular risk that you've identified. And you have to implement those controls and document them. So these supplementary measures, you need to have worked it all the way through, got your documentation, proved they work for the risks that you're trying to stop. There are also formal procedural steps. So you have to demonstrate that the supplementary measures that you've put in place are not ambiguous, that you and your counterparties are exactly clear on what is expected of them. If you make any changes to the SCC at all, so that could be changing the SCCs themselves, or it could be putting in place a supplementary measure that has the effect of changing one of the SCCs, you will need authorization from the supervisory authority to do that before you can transfer the data. And you need to show that the SCCs can be complied with in practice. So this is going back to what I said before about it's not enough to just put them into your contract. You have to show that they work and that they are preventing the national laws of the country that you're sending the data to from making your data transfer unsafe from the point of the EU citizen. So you have to show that the SDCs that you've put in place mean that the state can't surveil the data, that data subjects really do have the rights that they would have in the UK, that you're complying with the data protection principles, even though you're transferring the data to another country. And then finally, having done all of those things, you have to have a process in place to re-evaluate those transfers. So if you've uh, made a decision that the legal environment is okay. You need to be monitoring developments in the country, new laws that come out, new case law, new approaches to law and enforcement of the law. Um, and you need to be re-evaluating whether you still believe that. Don't need to do that if you decided that it wasn't adequate in the first place. What you do need to do is do the same thing for your control. So you need to have a testing programme in place and an assessment process programme in place to make sure that you are constantly checking that your controls remain effective. So if you're using encryption standards, that your encryption remains unhacked, that the things that you are doing continue to target the risks that you've identified and effectively prevent those risks. This is a lot. This really is a lot for a lot of organisations, and it is going to take time. Um, it's one of the reasons why, as John said, there is a year to get this right, but we have to start soon because this is quite a big piece of work to be doing.
And it starts with this box on the left, know your transfers. That's the bit to focus on first. The rest of it is hard. That bit you should be able to do, that's hard enough. So what are the supplementary measures that the European Data Protection Board is looking at? Well, there's basically two. So it is not, as I said, taking a risk-based approach. It says, if you still wish, after you've done all these assessments, to envisage the transfer, you should look into relevant and objective factors and not rely on subjective ones, such as the likelihood of public authorities' access to your data in a manner not in line with EU standards. One of the reasons that they've said that is that the, um, the US response to the Schrems 2 decision was that the states most of the time won't care about the data that gets transferred and won't try to surveil it. And the EU is saying it doesn't matter. Um, you have to prevent them from being able to. You can't make a subjective decision about whether you think they'll be interested or not. Your job is to make sure they can't. And that means that you've got two different options here. First of all, strong encryption, that means that the data can't be accessed while it's in transit, and that the recipient can't access the data either, which means it cannot be used once it gets to the third country, because in that third country, the recipient can't see the data. So you cannot send it to a third country with the intention that the third country is going to be able to do anything with your data. The second thing you can do is you can use what you call privacy enhancing technologies that prevent the individual being identified. So effectively that means that you're not sending the data itself or if you are you're sending it in a way that pseudonymizes it enough that the recipient cannot work out whose data it is, which is quite complicated to do in practice, but that is a way of doing it. You can provide data about somebody to a third country in a way that stops that recipient from working out who send it, you know, re-identifying whose data it was in the first place. They're really the only two options that you've got. And it means that most transfers are off limits. So the two kinds of transfers that most organisations try to do, um, and are becoming increasingly more common, they're out. And it explicitly says so in the guidance. So if you are planning on putting data in the cloud, so that, that, cloud, so that you can control where the cloud data is stored, so nominate EU servers, for example, and then allow other countries to access the data from the EU servers, you can't do that. That is not okay. You are unlikely to be able to find a way of implementing appropriate supplementary measures to make that okay. And you also can't transfer data for shared business purposes. So if you have a group with um, offices in different countries, more than likely you cannot send the data to those other countries so that they can do business purposes with them. So you probably can't have one office that does all of your payroll outside of the EU and send data from the EU to that office for the payroll to be processed. And I said to you at the beginning that this is really strict and we are going to be talking to you about things that are not comfortable that you probably don't like. This, this is not the kind of, um, of guidance that a lot of businesses will welcome. 
because this is so strict. Um, and, and this is a lot of things that businesses want to do. You're being told are, are now very, very difficult because of this strict new guidance. And, um, and it is probably going to take a while to work out exactly what the best response is going to be to this. Um, so, as I said, for the moment, the most important thing to do is to make sure that you understand which processes are going to be affected, where your data is actually going, and make sure that you've got a business continuity plan in place to recognise the fact that these transfers may stop and you may or may not be in control of them stopping. So the main um, option that the supervisory authority has got, um, the main remedy it's got if something happened, is they can prevent these transfers, they can make them stop the cross-border transfer. I'm really sorry, I've just appreciated we're over time already, um, so I should keep going and um, hopefully you can stay with us. Um, but the main thing that they can do is stop the transfers, which means that you have to have this business continuity option in place to cope if the transfer stops. So your last option is these derogations. They're only available if data can't be safeguarded. So either because it's not, uh, you know, the nature of the transfer is such that you couldn't put SCCs in place, um, or the SCCs, there are no supplementary measures that would effectively protect the data and you still have to send it. But you can only do this occasionally. It's only for ad hoc transfers. It can't be for a part of your normal business processes. And for every individual transfer, you have to make the decision about which derogation you're going to use and document it. So what does all of this mean for companies? So is anybody going to enforce this? Yes, like we said at the beginning, these are really strict guidelines. They are not suggesting that the EDPB is particularly mocking about about this. Even before the EDPB guidance came out, we had individual data protection authorities telling organizations like Facebook to stop transferring data to the US telling organisations to localise their data in the EU, um, issuing detailed guidance that basically says end-to-end -end encryption is what's necessary, telling people not to keep transferring their data to the US because of these problems. We've also seen what we talked about at the beginning with Noid putting complaints in, we have other privacy activists, this is not going away, it is going to be enforced. Um, and this, these are the NOIB complaints, which because of time I won't dwell on, but there are 101 complaints that they've made about organisations using Google Analytics, using Facebook Connect, doing very ordinary things. That's what the complaints are about, and they're about fairly ordinary companies. So what are your alternatives? So you need to understand where your data is going to flow and why you're sending it there. And that's what I would call a data utility assessment. What is your purpose for sending the data there? Um, and how could you achieve that purpose otherwise? Having made that determination, you then need to decide how you're going to do it. Um, and you can either transfer the data but not have it accessible, so that's encryption, or you can transfer the information about the data but not the personal data itself that's your privacy enhancing technologies. The other alternative you've got, which is difficult, is you can completely anonymize the data, which removes it from the scope of GDPR. Um, but if data is anonymized, then it is impossible 
impossible, even for sophisticated people with lots of other access to data, to re-identify the data. It's a hard standard to meet. It's not just a matter of taking somebody's name off something and replacing it with Mickey Mouse. So, but the point is that only the data exporter should be able to identify the data and nobody else should when it's traveling outside of the EU. So your practical steps to take today, um, appoint an EU representative if you need one, identify an EU lead supervisory authority if you need one. You have a number of implementation actions that flow from that, things like updating your template letters for DSERF with subject access requests to make sure that they refer to your EU representative and your lead supervisory authority. We can help you with that. We think there's about 150 of them. We can help you identify all of those five minute activities, every single one of them, it's just a lot of them. So get all of that done, that's your first thing. Then map or review your data flows and process flows and make sure that you have a map showing all of the locations where your data can be accessed from. Then having done that, we move into the difficult and complicated stuff, which is establishing your lawful basis, your supplementary measures and putting your implementation plan in place to get that right. Sorting out your business continuity plans for what are you going to do if the transfer has to fail or has to stop and updating your data protection impact assessments and your records of processing. That's the things that you're going to need to do and do them in that order, I would say. Um, for EU organisations, appoint a UK representative if you need to, register with the ICO and pay the fee if you need to, complete your implementation actions, it's the same 150 or so, map or review your data flows and your process flows, establish your lawful basis, supplementary measures that you're going to put in place and sort out your implementation plan to make that happen, Update your business continuity plans and update your data protection impact assessments and your records of processing to show how you're now processing your data. And your next steps that we can help you with. So we can help you with an EU representative, we can help you with the UK representative, just come and ask. We have a Brexit checklist and a, a data transfer assessment that we can help you with to help you work out what actions you're going to have to take around the EU representative, the UK representative and working out what to do with your data transfers. You can get your data flows mapped and your documentation updated using a tool like CyberComply which we offer um, and you can update your business continuity plans and understand how your business continuity planning is working for you using a business continuity health check. We can help you with any of those things, so just ask us. We also offer um, a half-day GDPR and DPA 2018 after Brexit training course that you can come on that will explain in detail how UK GDPR and DPA 2018 varies from the EU version. We can offer you an EU representative, we can do these transfers um, assessments and help you work out what you want to do and to help you get your data mapped and your data organised and your privacy compliance sorted out, we can offer you CyberComply, which is a really fantastic user-friendly tool that helps you put everything in one place so you can keep an eye on it. Questions? Right, I'm now going to go and see whether anybody has got any questions for us. We have lots of questions. Okay, so will the outcome of Brexit 
a deal or a no-deal scenario, a factor whether the UK will become a third country after the transition period. Will we become a third country regardless of the outcome? Um, well, as we said, most likely we are going to become a third country. It's unlikely we're going to get an adequacy decision. The adequacy decision may or may not come along with any withdrawal agreement. Um, they're two separate things. And, and the safest and most sensible thing for you to do is to assume that we are going to become a third country. And these problems and these challenges that we've outlined today are going to be things that we're going to need to tackle. Will a handout be available? Um, so you'll get the slides that we've taken you through. You'll get a recording of this webinar. You have the option to ask us any questions afterwards as well. Please do that. I'm very happy to talk to you. Um, and we'll also be, um, you know, we're, we're always available. We have all of the other things that we talked about that we can help you with as well. <laughs> we have a complicated one. What are the implications for organisations in the UK and EU who use Microsoft Outlook, which obviously includes transfer of data, but there is no way small organisations can assist in standard contractual clauses, right? So the correct answer, according to the EDPB guidance, is that you should stop using Microsoft Outlook. Um, I would say for most organisations, if you stopped using Microsoft Office products immediately, you would have a critical business impact um, on your organisation. And I would not recommend that you did that. Um, but you do need to think about what you're going to do um, and what your options are. You are, you know, for all that Microsoft feels like the kind of large organization that you're powerless against, especially when you're a smaller organization, um, you're not powerless because your choice is whether or not you use Microsoft. I think we can expect that the regulator is going to be talking to Microsoft and working with them to find an approach that does comply with the law. Um, and, and, you know, and that can be part of the risk plan um, that you put in place. But the thing, again, going back to business continuity, the, the thing that I would say to you is, with something like that, that's so embedded in an organization, it's a business continuity problem. What would you do if there was an outage, if there was a problem? Um, what would you do in that situation? What would you do if they put out an update and the update failed, if there was a hack or a problem that meant it was unavailable to you? Um, that's the same as if a supervisory authority said, we're going to outlaw this, we're going to stop these data transfers. Or, you know, I think it's probably too much to expect organisations to stop immediately, but those are questions that you need to be asking yourself. Uh, Julie asked a reminder what RIPA is. RIPA is the, in fact, I'm going to ask John to ask that one because I know I'm going to get it wrong. It's our Policing and State Surveillance Act. John, what does it stand for? Oh, John might be en route. Um, it's our um, Investigatory Powers Act. I think it's the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, but it's the, it's the act that allows our, um, our state actors to um, to surveil basically 
Um, and the, the problem that it's got is that it allows surveillance to be done not enough in a boxed out way for EU to be happy with it from a legal point of view. Um, right, Miles, you're quite correct. Miles said, I was under the impression that the UK had said that the EU was to be declared adequate by us. Is this not the case? That's absolutely correct. And it's very much something that I should have said. So I apologise for not making that clear earlier. You're absolutely right. The UK has given the EU adequacy. The EU has not given us adequacy. So the effect of that is to mean that we can send data to the EU without any problems because we say that it's as safe in the EU as it would be in the UK. What isn't happened or hasn't happened yet is the EU saying that data going to the UK will be as safe as if it stayed in the EU. So you have this sort of theoretical possibility that data could be sent to the EU well, from the UK and we couldn't retrieve it again. So that's where we are at the moment. Um, it's also worth saying that of the countries that have adequacy with the EU, as far as I'm aware, all of them except for Andorra have said that they will consider the UK to be adequate after Brexit. So um, those flows in both directions are not affected. It's the, um, the flows between the UK and the EU, and specifically the EU, EU and the UK that are potentially affected by this. Ah, it sounds like some of you had audio issues um, with John when he was explaining about the EU supervisory authority. So um, his explanation about the EU supervisory authority, um, you may wish to nominate a lead supervisory authority in the EU um, if you are a UK organisation. And the advantage if you do that is that that organisation will then liaise with all of the other supervisory authority, uh, authorities for you and they become the one that's responsible for regulating you. So um, in that case what happens is you basically um, simplify everything because you've already identified who that is, they know who you are and you know who will investigate you, who can answer your questions, um, who data subjects can complain to. If you don't do that, um, what then happens is that um, any supervisory authority that has a, a citizen in it that does business with you could take the complaint, or it could be multiple of them. So you end up in a potentially more complicated situation. So you don't have to do it, but I would recommend that you do because it just makes life a lot easier for you. And the way to choose the one that's the best for you um, is to think about um, if you are making decisions about processing and those decisions get made in the EU, think about where that happens. If you aren't, if the decisions are made somewhere else, think about where you've got concentrations of people that you're processing their data. So is there a particular country that they live in or they work in um, where you can say, actually, we've got more EU citizens, EU residents there so that would be a good choice for where to choose for your supervisory authority. You can't just pick the one that you think is going to be the easiest to work with or because you speak their language or whatever. You have to pick one which is relevant because of the data subjects in the EU that you deal with. Um, we've been asked if a recording of the webinar will be available. It will. We'll send it to you after this.
Uh, right, Marils again. An EU resident books a stay in my UK hotel on my UK website. As far as I'm concerned, this is not me transferring data across border. Do I need to change my privacy notice? So you can use a derogation for that. So there is a specific derogation um, about contracts um, where, because it's, so this is a slightly complicated one and a particular example of it. Because you your hotel is located in the UK, then it's impossible for you to fulfill the contract with the individual without processing their data in the UK. It's a fundamental part of it. Um, it's not sort of your choice that you happen to have put this processing function there. The whole thing is there. So it means that even if you couldn't put standard contractual clauses in place, you can use the derogation to say that the data is going to have to come to the UK and it's because they're staying in my UK hotel. So you'd have to explain to them that the UK is not covered by EU GDPR. That would be the responsibility of whoever is um, selling the hotel room. Um, and, and you'd have to explain to them that their data is going to come to the UK and that it's got a different data protection regime from the EU. And that has to be in your privacy notice. Is that clear? I hope so. Uh, Bernard, I can see hello, but I can't see a message, unfortunately. Um, but lovely to see you. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Rose, unfortunately, has had a problem um, and missed the last 10 minutes. Yes, there will be a recording. I can say that one again. <laughs> Julie wants to cancel Brexit. <laughs> unfortunately, that's not an option. Enough people still want Brexit to be going ahead, that Brexit's going ahead. It doesn't matter anymore, unfortunately, which way our opinions go. Staunch remain, staunch leave. This is happening. Can data transfers to third countries active slash strong national surveillance programmes like those focused on trends to ever be legal? Only with the, um, with the supplementary measures in place that I mentioned. So where that receiving country can't see the data can't identify an individual from the data, then yes, it's legal. But it is not legal if they can. Is there a list of third countries as such? If so, who can provide me with this list? Um, a third country is any country other than the countries of the EEA or any country that has an adequacy agreement. Um, the best way for you to get a list is literally to Google those things. So which countries are in the EU and the EEA and which countries have an adequacy decision from the EU Commission. Either of those will take you to a list and it will take you to a page with the up-to-date list because those things can change. Um, you know, we've left South Korea and the UK might go onto the list. So that would be my recommendation. A third country is everywhere else, everywhere else that's not on those two lists. In terms of EU representatives, when they say offering goods and services to individuals in the EEA, do they mean services that are delivered to individuals physically located within the EU, EEA? So the scope is um, it, it's basically processing that happens in the EU or processing that happens for EU citizens anywhere. So that's what we're talking about. So if you need an EU representative, if you run a bead shop 
in the UK and you have a lot of customers from France that buy beads from you, you are processing a lot of French data. Um, and equally, if you have a UK hotel and you have a big market of French people that come and stay in your hotel, you're processing French data. Uh, another question about webinar recordings. Who is obliged to investigate a data breach in the USA if the parent company is in the UK? Would it be the parent company? That needs to be set out in your contract. Um, however, um, the, the, company, the company in the UK or the company in the EU or whatever, um, if it was a notifiable data breach, wherever it happened, um, if it's affecting EU citizens, if it's affecting UK citizens, that's going to have to be um, notified to the supervisory authority. So the data controller, wherever the data breach takes place in the world, the data controller needs to know. Um, they need to make sure that it is investigated, that it is sorted out, and that it is resolved, and that anything else like notifying the supervisory authority happens. So um, we've had a couple of breaches um, that we've seen on the ICO. Um, recently, so um, they've delivered fines recently to Ticketmaster um, and to Marius and Starwood Hotels. Um, they both have uh, US parents um, and the UK has levied fines on them because of the amount of the data breach that affected UK citizens. So that's what's important. I hope that makes sense. Can SCCs be used between processes in the EU and sub-processes in the UK? Yes, they can, with the supplementary measures. Um, 28 pages makes the contract very long. It really does. Yes, there's no getting away from that. It, it's a true fact. Uh, can you please talk about exactly what constitutes a data transfer? Yeah, um, so data transfer is anything where data moves so that could be literally physically the data moving so i send a file from here to another country um, but it can also mean data being accessed from another country as well so if i have data on a server in the uk and i send a copy of the data from that server or i put the server in an envelope and i post it to the us that is a data transfer um, it's also a data transfer if somebody from the US accesses the data on my server via the internet or, you know, whatever. Both of those are data transfers. So it's anything that involves um, personal data becoming accessible somewhere else or by a different organisation. Uh, can the SCCs be part of an appendix to a contract? Um, I believe they need to be in the contract itself. The appendix might be where you'd put the supplementary measures. They certainly need to be a, a core part of the contract. Can you rely on SOC 2 reports for large companies? Um, you, you need the SCCs. The SOC 2 report might be part of how you demonstrate compliance. Um, but you can't use it instead. It's got to be a part of your overall data protection um, regime. You can think about which parts of it your SOC 2 reports are going to support, um, but you can't use them all on their own if they don't cover everything that they're going to need to. How do the options for a transfer apply to a UK business? 
that stores data in a US data center, um, as in an infrastructure as a service provider. Um, so if you are a UK business storing data in a US data center, you are carrying out transfers. So um, the data that you're storing in the US data center, if that can be end-to-end -end encrypted so that nobody at the data center and nobody else in the US can access that data, keep going, that's a good supplementary measure, that's absolutely fine. Um, but if that data isn't encrypted like that, and at any point, it, you know, in transit or while it's stored, it could be uh, accessed from the US, then you haven't done enough yet. So hopefully that's clear. Um, and I think that's all of my questions. So unless anybody's got anything else, thank you very much. I'm so sorry we've overrun by half an hour. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. You will get a copy of the slides, you will get a copy of the webinar recording, and you're also going to get a certificate that will give you an hour's CPD for having attended this webinar as well. All of those things will come to you after this webinar. Thank you so much for joining us. And please, any other questions that you've got, anything that you'd like to talk to us about or for us to help you with, we would be delighted. So thank you very much.